0: Good afternoon, and welcome to The Legal Legal Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. I'm an attorney here in Lakeland. To call into the show, the number is 863-682-1430. That's 863-682-1430. To contact me at my office, the number is 863-688-2389. That's 863-688-2389. My office is conveniently located at 904 South Missouri Avenue in Lakeland. Um, I thought today that we would go through uh, some relevant recent issues as well as relevant future issues coming up. Uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is holiday time sharing with children. Hey, folks, this time of year is when it becomes emotional between parents, it's emotional for the kids themselves. Um, and it's a big part of our family law system is dealing with parents that can't get along, uh, as it would relate to their kids. And it's very unfortunate because it, it's all, the, Christmas and, and Thanksgiving and these whole seasons really are about two things. Uh, your, your beliefs in religion and whatever you want to deal with in those aspects, and I try not to draw conclusions one way or the other. Some people are deeply religious. Others are not. But the other part of it is it's a time for families to have time with their kids and to spend time with their kids, quality time with their kids. Uh, And when there has been a a relationship that is now broken, meaning either a divorce or a paternity case where the parties no longer live together, meaning the, the father and mother, it really becomes about the kids. And too often, they, uh, I'll have a client coming in to see me or is already an existing client. And they'll say, my kids, I can't do this and I can't do that. And I look at them and I go, well, let's correct something right off the bat. It's not my kids. It's our kids, meaning you and whoever is the, the other party, whether it be a father or mother on the other side. It, it's our kids. So let's get that train wreck from all you know back on the tracks. And get it running right because you you need to learn that you're going to be working with this other person, like it or not, for at least the 18 years of the uh, you know the minority of those kids or or the child if it's a single child. Uh, and actually, that's that's even a misnomer because you still got to deal with them even after they turn 18. You don't just toss them to the curb and go bye bye. They're still your children after that. And some people go, well, they're no longer a child. You, they're still your children by definition. You, you've they're your bloodline. They, you've either they're either part of your product of your relationship, or maybe they were adopted. They're still your kids, whatever, and they're going to remain your children for the rest of your life, because they're your children, and it's part of what you need to deal with. So I thought we'd talk about the holidays. Somewhat, we've already had Thanksgiving pass us by here. And typically Thanksgiving is one of the bigger holiday time periods that, that parents tend to fight over. Um, some people call it the winter break. I'm going to call it the Christmas break because that's what I've always called it since I was a child. Is another one of our bigger breaks. Um, it's almost a two-week period. It's not quite, but it's almost a two-week period. Um, spring break is, or Easter If you want to refer to it that way, but the spring break is another one of our bigger blocks. And then the summer time period, when kids are off from school, is another one of our bigger blocks, meaning it's about a roughly eight to 10 week period of time that kids are out of school. And so I wanted to talk, kind of use Christmas as the biggest example, but uh, we can talk about how that has some trade offs uh, with other parts of the year. Um, With Christmas, the way our court system works is one of a few different ways. If you're on one of the old traditional Model A, Model B time-sharing schedules where one of the parents gets roughly 70% of the time and the other one gets 30% of the time, uh, Christmas traditionally is split into two parts. One parent one year will get the part from the time school lets out until about Christmas Day usually around noonish on Christmas Day. The other parent then gets the remainder of that holiday. And you're going, well, that's not fair because the way it works here in Polk County, that first part is the shorter part. Well, here's where I'm getting ready to tell you what happens, though. The next year, that flips. So the person that had the shorter time period will get the longer time period. In other words, whoever had the part before Christmas will then get the part after Christmas all the way through New Year's. So it ends up balancing out. I have to explain that to almost every client that's dealing with that type of timesharing schedule. Is that, yeah, you get hosed one year, but the next year you're the one that's getting the bigger share. So you're really not getting hosed. It's a split. Thanksgiving usually is... And now that the kids are off for a whole week, I remember when I was in elementary and even possibly into junior high school, we literally only got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. We went to school Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, they changed that later on to make it a whole week, and it was so people could have a vacation during that time frame. Now it rotates on a year-by-year basis. In other words, one year, one parent will have uh, one that week. The next year, the other one will have that week, unless... Sometimes the court will do a similar type of split with Thanksgiving, or the parties can agree to a similar type of split as Christmas, where one year one of the parties gets the first half, the other party gets the second half, and then they flip it the next year. Generally, though, the better way of handling that is the week-on, week-off type situation of one year you get it, the next year you don't. The other week that we deal with like that is Easter break or spring break, whatever you want to call it. Whoever's usually getting the Thanksgiving break does not get the Easter break, again, unless the parties can agree to something. But generally, one year you get one of them, the next year you get the other, and then it flips for the other party as well. The idea being that the children will have as much time as possible with each one of their parents so that they can have time-sharing. We don't talk about custody anymore. It's time-sharing. And we can say, well, we're trying to be politically correct. No, that's not really it. We're trying to help the kids. I'm going to go into more of this after the break. You've been listening to Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM. Good afternoon and welcome back to The Legal Eagle Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. To call in, the number is 863-682-1430. That's 863-682-1430. To contact me at my office, the number is 863-688-2389. That's 863-688-2389. We've been talking about timesharing as it would relate to uh, folks, kids, that where they've gone through a breakup, whether it be a divorce or a paternity action. Uh, and and or just where you know they've they've split. That's kind of what a paternity deal is. is so you can uh, figure out when people are not married how to deal with the children as it would relate to the parties. And you know we always hear, "I want custody. I want custody." And I am I'm having to really uh, get my my clients to understand now that word is basically a thing of the past. We do not use that in the legal system anymore. It is all about time-sharing. Now some may end up with a majority time-sharing arrangement. Others end up with what we call a 50-50 time-sharing arrangement. And I've kind of gone through the holidays except for summer break. Uh, More and more our courts uh, are using the summer and doing it as a split or rotational deal with the parties, unless it just simply doesn't work for the parties. And that could be a work-related issue or a distance-related issue but typically what we're looking at is either week on, week off, or two weeks on, two weeks off. A lot of it depends on the age of the children, uh, the needs of the children, their emotional needs. Uh, it's, Folks, I, I really want to get everybody to understand that I am very serious when I talk to my clients about this type of issue, and they start saying, well, I want, and I look at them and go, I don't care what you want. We need to understand and do what's best for your child or your children, which probably is going to end up being a situation where both parents have the maximum amount of time that they possibly can with the kids. The court is more interested in the best interests of the kids than whatever the parent might want. The parent has their own emotional needs or whatever they want to do to try to get back at the other side. But everybody needs to understand our judges are focused on what will be best for the kids. And I, I'm using the word kids. I'm using that in an overall term. If there's only one child, then it means their child. But they're trying to make sure that those, those children uh, have as much time with each one of the parents, as long as the parents are good parents. And in most cir- circumstances, believe it or not, people have good parenting skills. They may not be good with each other in trying to figure things out, but they're good parents with the kids themselves. Um, and it, it's good to see that. We want to make sure that the parents are as involved as possible with the kids. And all that being said, we have several judges now that that they kind of start with the concept that they want to do or look at 50-50 type arrangements. And people go, what's that mean? That each one of the parents has an equal amount of time with the kids. That can be done in a number of ways. We can do it in a week-on, week-off situation. We can do it in a 3-4 split where one week parent A gets three days, parent B gets four days. The next week parent A gets four days, the other parent gets three days. The two-two-three works where parent A gets the first two days, then parent B gets the second two days, then parent A gets the next three days, but then we flip it the next week to where parent B is getting the first two days, parent A gets the next two days, and then parent B gets the three days. That ends up resulting ultimately in a 50-50. I know that sounds confusing. It's not that hard to figure out once you get into a routine. And quite frankly, I end up telling most of my clients, buy a calendar, and you can literally write the dates down on the calendar so you know what you've got. I mean, I carry a calendar through my office. I have a calendar at home. There's no reason people can't use a calendar. You've got calendars in your cell phones anymore, although those are subject to having breakdowns. But at least some sort of calendar you can have and mark it down. There is no reason you can't get through those types of things and and realistically again what we're talking about is trying to make sure that both parents are as involved as possible um, with the kids in trying to do what is best for the kids um, in order to raise productive good members of our community that have had as healthy of a home environment as they can when it's a split household and it's difficult uh, nobody's going to say it's going to be easy. And there's going to be times where the two parents don't agree. But they got to learn how to co-parent, and that's one of our other key words we use within the family law system is co-parenting. Talk to each other about it. It's your child. You know, you thought of each other m- enough to have sex to begin with, and, yeah, I'm going to go there with that. You had sex with each other such that it ultimately resulted in a pregnancy and a child being born. If you can't get along with the other party well enough to raise the child, you shouldn't have got together to begin with. And it sounds real simplistic for me to say that. But you made that choice. Now you need to make the choice to do the right thing by your child and act like an adult instead of a kid yourself. And the pettiness that I see out of some people when they come through, and I'm talking about my clients and the other sides. I'm not playing favorites here and saying all my clients are saints. They're not, but they need to see through the maze of the whole process and understand that it's not about them. It's about their kid, and, and ultimately that may mean, yes, I want more time with the child, but the ultimate deal is is what the court's going to figure out is what is actually best for that, that child. Um, it, it's hard for me at times because I, I've been very blessed to be married to my wife for over 38 years now, And we've had three great children. Uh, They're all adults now. The youngest one's 21, and the oldest one's 33. He'll be 34 in January. Um, The key about what I'm trying to get across with the holidays, though, is we have done things with those kids that sometimes I forget about what we've done, but they remember them because it was meaningful to them. Uh, We've been in St. Augustine before over a holiday. And some of the things we would do while we were there had such a significant impact on them that 15, 20 years later now, they still remember those things, and they'll bring it up when we're talking at a table, all sitting down to eat together. That's what you need to try to get across. And I'm not trying to say I was the perfect parent. I wasn't. There were times where I worked too many hours, and I was not there for my kids, I tried to make up for it in other ways by coaching and doing things like that to be uh, active in their their social lives. But I wasn't there for them all the time. I'll be the first one to admit that. Um, The reality is, though, they still remember things I did for them, that their mother's done for them, and things that we still continue to try to do for them. And that's what's called co-parenting, communicating with the other parent to let them know what's going on just because you're divorced or not living with somebody anymore doesn't mean you can't do things together with your child, such as going to uh, uh, chorus recitals. God, I hated going to those things, but I did it anyway because it was important to our kids. Going to football games, going to cheerleading events, going to powerlifting tournaments, I, we did all those things. My wife and I did as many of those things as we could together. There may have been an occasion where I couldn't be there or she couldn't be there. Because of some other event, or maybe we had kids with two different events in two different places. Uh, One may have a football game at one stadium and another one a football game at another. In Little League, that sometimes happened. But the reality check is is that we were there for them. And it meant a lot to them because later they now remember those things. Um, The worst thing a parent can do is try to keep the other parent from spending time with their kids. Now, obviously, there are some exceptions to what I just said. Um, if, there, if it's unhealthy because of drugs in the other home, uh, if there's alcohol issues to the extent that it's causing a problem with that relationship, if there are abuse issues where one parent is abusive towards the kids, and I mean real abuse. I don't mean this imaginary abuse where people want to just say, Oh, he little Johnny came home with a bruise on his arm. Well, that doesn't mean he was abused. Little Johnny could have fell. That's what kids do. They fall. They get bruises. I'm talking about something though, where there's you know serious issues of abuse, uh, drugs, alcohol. Um, we can even talk about sex abuse if there's something like that. Then those are issues where yes, the parents got to take the the initiative and be the lead and make sure that the child's protected. But otherwise, let the other party have as much time as they can. That's what it's about. It's what helps these kids to mature and become healthy adults themselves with a healthy respect for how to deal with their own children if they have children. Lastly, as it would relate to those types of issues, fighting over who's going to control the time with the children creates an enormous amount of stress On the kids themselves one of the things I have heard coming out of my client's mouth well can we have the kid testify in court no I'm not gonna have that kid testify in court unless it's over one of the issues we just talked about with drugs alcohol some sort of abuse and even then when they're under a certain age you have to have court approval to be able to even have them come forward to testify. And quite frankly, I still think it's a horrible idea in most cases because of the amount of stress that it puts on that child and the fact that they're going to have to carry that with themselves for the rest of their lives that they had to testify in a proceeding between their parents. It's just not healthy for the kid. It's not in the best interest of the kid. And it's one of the worst things that you can do. Instead, try to foster as best you can a relationship where the child believes both of the parents care about them. You've been listening to Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM, and I look forward to talking to you more about another subject after the break. Welcome back to The Legal Eagle Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. To call in, the number is 863-682-1430. That's 863-682-1430. To contact me at my office, the number is 863 863- Six eight eight two three eight nine. That's eight six three six eight eight two three eight nine. Based on what we were talking about before the break, if any of you have questions about anything I talked about concerning visitations and stuff as it would relate to your own kids or grandkids, even, I don't hesitate to contact me in my office, and I'll try to explain that a lot further for you because each individual circumstance is really different on that. I was giving you a lot of the general concepts that we're dealing with now, uh, including what we call the 50-50 arrangement, where each parent has equal amounts of time sharing. Um, I would say it's a relatively new concept because in my practice of being an attorney, it is a relatively new concept. Uh, It's been around for a few years now, uh, but I've been doing this now for 35 years. So when you've only had something like that really around for a few years, that's kind of recent in the big picture of things. Uh, so I, I don't mind if somebody calls and wants to talk to me about that. We'll set you a time to come in. Uh, but realistically, a lot of what I stressed is kind of the way the courts are leaning these days. I thought we would take the remainder of the show uh, and go over a subject that was similar, to, or at least it's the aftermath of what I discussed on my last live show. And this time it's the Written House verdict and the aftermath of such a verdict. Um, they had a bunch of National Guardsmen in town that night for the the post-verdict possibilities. It turned out that my understanding is they didn't have any real problems. Maybe it's because the Guardsmen were there. But the reality check is, based on the law, based on what I heard of the evidence and saw of the evidence, uh, and it was a lot more than we ever got out of the media to begin with, uh, it, it was the correct verdict, and ultimately justice was done through the court system. Should he have ever been charged? In my humble opinion, the answer is no. But that's my opinion, and opinions are like some other things that all of us have. And so I'm not going to go any further with it than to say, I don't believe he should have been charged to begin with, but he was, and the correct result came out of it as a result of, of the trial. So then the issue is, what are we dealing with post-written house? Meaning, what could we expect? Could he be charged federally? Is one of the issues that I heard some commentators on one of the networks coming up with, and I, I thought, Jesus, people, let this die at this point. I guess supposedly the answer is yes, he could be, but it's very unlikely, and there's a re- there's several reasons why it's extraordinarily unlikely. Um, one, it's not precluded on double jeopardy grounds. A lot of people goes, well, it would be double jeopardy. No, it's not. There's a bunch of cases out there that talk about the differences between federal court and state court, and a lot of those cases evolved during the 1960s and 70s as part of the civil rights movement. And so he technically could be charged in the federal system because it wouldn't necessarily be barred by double jeopardy, but there has to be an additional basis to get it into the federal court system as part of their jurisdiction. And I'm not going to beat that dead horse today because it could take me half a show to do that. But the long and the short of it is there's really not a basis to want to take this into the federal court system or to even be able to take it into the court system. Secondarily, and it, this has been my experience over 35 years of practicing law and being licensed in the Middle District Federal Court System of Florida for at least 32 or 33 years of those. It's probably about 32. Um, the the net result is that the feds rarely charge anything, that they don't feel like they've got a fairly high success rate of winning. In other words, they, they like what we call a slam dunk. People that are familiar with basketball know that that's basically where you take that ball and you slam it, through the hoop. In legal terms, that means they want a case that they believe they have a very, very high likelihood of success of winning before they'll even bring it into the system. Now, do they bring a few dog and pony shows in? Yes, they do. Not very often. And a lot of times, those end up being what we call politically motivated charges And realistically, a lot of times that blows up in their face when they do it. Well, this has already been litigated within the state court system. uh, That litigation was borne out on TV nationally daily with the, the cameras in the court. And as a result, it is highly, highly unlikely that the feds would do anything for purposes of a charge against Mr. Rittenhouse. I think he's safe and in the clear on that. I cannot see it happening whatsoever. Uh, One of the other issues that has been addressed to me uh, off air, and it's not even today, but it was something off to the side, is how is the self-defense different in this than what was uh, presented in the Aubrey case? Now, I will be very honest with you, I did not get to watch as much of the Aubrey case as I did of the Rittenhouse case. A lot of it had to deal with the timing and when I had the opportunity, because I yes, I do work, folks, and so I was still having to work. But it was a matter of trying to catch pieces as it went. I was not able to see as much of the Aubrey trial as I did the Rittenhouse trial. But from what I saw of the Aubrey trial, you have a much different scenario of three individuals interjecting themselves into a situation that they, quite frankly, had no business being in, um, and it resulted in them killing an individual that, at least under Georgia law, it looks like they did not commit any type of crime. Under Florida law, that person might have. We have what's called trespassing to a construction site And that is a criminal offense here in Florida. I don't know if Georgia's got anything like it. It was certainly not brought up very much, if at all. Uh, All that was brought up was that they thought he might have committed a crime. Well, thinking somebody committed a crime versus there being actual evidence to establish that they did is the difference in night and day on a case. Uh, In the Aubrey situation, they were trying to claim that they were effectuating a common law arrest. And yes, something something, or such a thing does exist. However, they're at the same standard as a law enforcement officer is, and they had no real probable cause to believe that Mr. Aubrey had committed any type of offense. So they are then placed into an entirely different situation of also trying to raise self-defense and... It wasn't going to fly into that circumstance. Aubrey was completely unarmed, was not the initial aggressor in any type of manner. In fact, they are the ones that chased him down and became the aggressors towards him. He might have become aggressive towards them in his own defensive postures, but the video was the video on that, and it seemed to establish that he was actually just trying to get away from them, and they continued to pursue him. That is a completely different scenario than in Rittenhouse where the video showed Mr. Rittenhouse trying to get away from people. One of them pointed a gun admittedly from the witness stand at Mr. Rittenhouse before Mr. Rittenhouse shot him. Uh, Another one was beating him in the head with a skateboard. And then a third one, they uh, had identified as what they called the jump kick man. There's actual video and pictures of him. Jumping on and kicking Mr. Rittenhouse while he's on the ground. That's the three that we were able to focus on for purposes of that video that was presented in that. Now, there's a lot of other things in the Rittenhouse trial that are completely different, too. The, the level of competency of that prosecution team, and I don't think I'm speaking out of term here at all, was horrid. I have been doing the criminal defense end of it for 32 years, and I was a prosecutor for about three years before that. I have never seen a group or two lawyers more incompetently present a case than those two that were in that case. I've seen some cases where the prosecutor may not have been up to snuff, or the defense attorney was not what I would consider to be up to their level of competence, But in this case, this was just a whole new level of bad. And when the judge is routinely having to admonish them because they're basically, they're breaking basic constitutional law issues that we all learned in law school in the trial, that's just horrid. It shouldn't be happening in a homicide trial, especially a nationally um, televised homicide trial. I don't know where they dug those two guys up, but it was horrid. I'll go into this more after the break. You've been listening to Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM. Welcome back to the Legal Legal Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. To call in, the number is 863 682 1430. To contact me at my office, the number is 863 688 2389. That's 863 688 2389. We've been talking about the aftermath of the Rittenhouse verdict and what to expect next. The, the bigger issue that I see, and it's part of what's been being batted about, and it'll be interesting to see what Mr. Rittenhouse does out of this, is whether or not he sues anybody as a result of this particular issue. Uh, one of the things that could be batted around, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I don't think it'll happen, is whether he could, would sue the prosecutors themselves. Because they were able to put on enough of a case to get it to the jury, although there was some pending motions uh, before the court to dismiss it outright before that that had not been ruled on yet, the answer is that that probably wouldn't get him anywhere because they have what's called prosecutorial immunity. Uh, As long as they don't step over certain boundary lines on it, which I don't know that they went that far. It was close. Uh, And if the court had actually ruled to dismiss it based on their conduct, then he might have had a, had a whole different position concerning that kind of a suit. Uh, but because those issues were with, uh, not ruled on by the court and, and were taken under advisement pending the jury verdict, with the jury verdict coming down the way it did, I'd, I'm not real sure he would have much success in a suit against the prosecutors themselves. However, there's issues concerning suits for defamation. And a lot of people go, well, what's that? More of you are probably familiar with the terms libel and slander. We hear those much more frequently on the news media uh, or on programming. Uh, we we hear it, or we read it in our newspapers, uh, such that they still exist. Uh, but the long and the short of it is, is defamation is the overall umbrella. Uh, it's what slander and libel both are. Slander is a spoken word. Uh, that's negative about somebody else that's untrue. Libel is the written word. In other words, uh, a CNN broadcaster that's saying something over the airwaves, and I'm just using this as an example, if it's patently false, then that could constitute slander. If the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times put something in their paper uh, about somebody that is patently faults, and again, there's other hurdles, I'm just giving you the umbrella, then that would be libel. It's, it's just two different words for the same activity, only it's one is spoken and one is written. Um, there are a number, a number of potential lawsuits that would be available against a number of the networks and written news media, and I'm not going to sit here and, and name a bunch of names, but I think everybody knows who I'm talking about. At this point, part of their liability, um, especially as it would relate to TV and radio-oriented uh, broadcasts of the initial reports or the reports over months of this, uh, would really come down to whether or not they had been given full information uh, as part of the releases from law enforcement and from the district attorney's office in Wisconsin. If they were only given the snippets that they relied on for purposes of their information for the broadcast, that might absolve them of some liability. However, then the issue is, did they pursue it any further to verify that information? And if they didn't, it puts them back into the posture of potentially being sued then. And there is some talk that, that Mr. Hattenhaus could end up getting quite a bit of money out of these police, these different entities, um, much like the gentleman, and I cannot recall his name whatsoever, but it doesn't really matter on that, who ended up getting a very big settlement from CNN over the issue with the demonstration in Washington, D.C., where all he was doing was wearing a MAGA hat and they tried to portray him negatively in a brief encounter that he had with a Native American. They, they tried to make it sound like he was doing something wrong when, he, in fact, they, it turns out once you saw the whole video, he had done nothing but stand there. He ended up getting a lot of money out of that because of the portrayal that was done by the news media because they had the entire video footage and they edited it to make it to a narrative that they wanted to push. When a full video came out and it was obvious that he had done nothing wrong, they were quick to write a check at that point. And I think... Depends on, again, how much the media had for information to begin with, whether they were given full information from law enforcement and from the news media, or not news media, but from uh, the district attorney's office, and then edited it down. And if that's the case, then they got a real problem. So, uh, again, and it it may depend on what – Mr. Rittenhouse wants to do, too. He's he's roughly, what, 18, 19 years old at this point. It might be for his benefit, for his long term of his life, that he might want to take a step back and try to find some way to become a little more anonymous out of this. I I, I don't want to tell the, the young man what to do. It's his business. Uh, it's ultimately whatever he would like to do out of it. From what I have watched of him in uh, interviews since, this trial verdict, he seems to be very bright and very articulate. So I'm sure there'll it'll, it'll be some thought processes put into it. He will probably talk to his mother. Um, she seems to have stood by him through all of this when a lot of people didn't. But those videos that were shown on the nightly news and the written uh, portions of what we got through news media were simply not accurate compared to what actually happened that night it was not even in the ballpark and so that's where it rises to the level of slander and libel the question then becomes what avenues he wants to take when he wants to do it and if he wants to do it at all and one of the other uh things that he might be able to deal with on a much better level and that's because of what they were calling him uh, there were certain people on certain TV shows that are not news-oriented shows; they're talk shows, so to speak, but they're not news shows. And I think we all know who we're talking about. People's like, you know, Whoopi Goldberg, Joy Joy Behar. They were literally calling him a racist. They were calling him a white supremacist on their shows, condemning him when they did not have the entire facts. And that can be real problematic for them. Some of those TV shows, as well as those personalities, may be having to pull out their checkbook and write a check. Because, quite frankly, they need to watch what they say and how they say it. They have a platform in which they are putting forth information. And when they don't know all of the information, the best thing they can do is shut their mouth. And I think part of the bigger problem is those two have still continued to run their mouth even after knowing all of the facts. That could be real problematic for them as it would relate to a civil suit because they're continuing to push a narrative that is simply not true. Now, if we want to talk about the fact were all of these people in the wrong that night as far as they shouldn't have been there, I would say Mr. Rittenhouse shouldn't have been there and nor should have any of those people that were trying to attack him. None of them should have been there. If you want to protest and do a peaceful protest somewhere, that's fine. You don't need to be running up and down and destroying public property and private property, more importantly, in trying to call that a peaceful protest. I've dealt with that on this show before. That is not a peaceful protest. I don't care what narrative any of the news media wants to sling on that. When you start destroying people's private property or even public property, because it's still the people's property at that point, it's just owned publicly, That is not a peaceful protest. A peaceful protest, for anybody that wants to understand what that is, should go back and look at the film of Martin Luther King with the marches that he did in the early 1960s. They would march down the street. They might sing hymns. They were trying to draw awareness to an issue that needed to be addressed. Throwing Molotov cocktails into a business and looting it is not a peaceful protest. That's criminal, it's organized criminal activity. The last issue I want to address, and it it may seem far-fetched, but there's been a lot of talk about whether he could sue President Biden or even potentially some of the other people that are in the government. And the answer to at least President Biden is, the answer is yes, he could sue him, because He, at at least in some of his commercials, he is actually on the commercial itself calling Mr. Rittenhouse a white supremacist. Now, presumptively, the president of the United States or a candidate for president of the United States should know better at that point than to do anything and take any kind of stand on a case without knowing all of the evidence. If he doesn't know it, he should say, look, there's a court system set up for this. He will be dealt with within that system and shut up about it. But he was trying to curry favor at that point in time as a candidate. And he made comments. And, his, and Mr. Rittenhouse's image was even used in some of the Biden campaign commercials. Now, that is a real problem because it's snippets, again, taken out of context, that gives a false, and the keyword word is false, betrayal. So as a result, yes, he could sue him. The next issue is, what about executive privilege or congressional privilege? President Biden was not president at the time. This was at a time when he was running for office. Executive privilege does not apply to candidates for a position like that if they're not already in the position. And he was not in Congress either, so there's no congressional privilege. He has no privilege to be able to hide behind. He could sue him. Will he do it? I don't think it's a good idea. But again, it's not my call to make. It's ultimately Mr. Rittenhouse's call to make. And that's a decision he'll have to make. But those are the things that we could be seeing in the next few weeks to months in the aftermath. You've been listening to Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM.